Hello everyone, Peter Zion here coming to you from Colorado. Today I wanted to talk about the status of the war from a supply point of view, specifically the weapon systems that are being used and how much of this is sustainable for both sides. Now the Ukrainians are definitely punching above their weight. They have only lost about 160 tanks compared to Russia's 660. So you know, from a from a video game point of view, that's spectacular. Uh, unfortunately, that's not the end of the story because the Ukrainians have a limited supply here. If you include all 300 odd tank systems that have been brought in from Central European countries in NATO who want to help the Ukrainians, the Ukrainians only have about 2,300 tanks. But the Russians? The Russians have 13,000. I mean, the balance of forces here is not even close. There's some legitimate questions to be asked about how usable those Russian tanks are because 10,000 of them are in storage. But the fact remains that for the Ukrainians, this is an all-in effort. Their entire male population has been mobilized. Weapons are coming in from the West. Everything they had in a stockpile is going. The Russians really are not putting their weight into this yet. And when and if that changes, we're in a very different conflict situation. Now, in order to help the Ukrainians with their numerical uh, inferiority, inferiority uh, the United States is providing a number of weapon systems to the Ukrainians. Uh, we've talked about the howitzers before, but I, today I want to talk about two that, of the systems that have allowed the Ukrainians to take out so many uh, Russian weapon systems. First, we have the javelins. Now, javelins are something that the Ukrainians absolutely love. They're man-portable. They take out any sort of armored vehicle, tanks included. And the issue is that we have already given the Ukrainians one quarter of our total stockpile. And Lockheed, who is the manufacturer of the Javelin, estimates that at current rates of production, just replacing that stockpile would take two years. So in order to keep up with the pace that the Ukrainians are using these weapons, we're talking about needing to build out our manufacturing for the Javelin supply line by at least a factor of 15. That is unlikely, and we haven't started on that yet because that would require congressional approval. The second system that has proven very popular is the Stinger, first popularized by Rambo III and, of course, the Afghan Mujahideen against the Soviet occupation in the 1980s. Well, we've already given the Ukrainians one-third of our total stockpile of Stingers, and even worse than the Javelins, Raytheon, the manufacturer, hasn't received a government order for the Stinger in over a decade. In fact, most of the components that go into the Stinger aren't even manufactured anymore. So if we want to keep up with this weapon system, we're talking about having to build out multiple supply lines from scratch in order to incorporate more advanced semiconductors into the systems that are used. That's not going to happen in less than a year. Now, there's two problems here. The first, of course, is for the war as it's being carried out right now, where over the midterm, the Russians are going to experience a greater and greater force advantage. Over the longer term, the Ukraine war is the, exactly the type of conflict that I've predicted in a lot of my work, specifically in the absent superpower, where the United States plays favorites in wars and provides equipment and intelligence, but doesn't really get involved itself. Well, if you're backing the weaker power, Man-portable weapons like the Javelin and the Stinger are absolutely essential. And at the rate we're going through our stockpile, we're going to run dry this calendar year. So if we do want to use 
tools like that in order to mess around in other people's wars in order to tilt them to our favor without actually putting boots on the ground, we need a significant build out as soon as possible. Now, in the short term, this calendar year, the Ukrainians are probably going to cease getting this sort of support from the United States in about five or six months, because that's when the cupboard will literally be dry. At that point, the balance of force in the war changes drastically. So we really have until next winter to come up with a backup plan, or by then, something's gotta give. Ukraine, Russia, supplies, the nature of the war, we'll see. But this phase that we're in, where there's incremental gains going one way or the other day on day, this is not sustainable without a robust weapons transfer system to Ukraine, and that is now unlimited time. Tactical weapons? <clears throat> no, I don't think that's very likely. The, the Russians are now in an artillery duel with the Ukrainians, and Russians train for artillery. This is how the Russian army has always preferred to fight. Uh, so I don't expect the war to go very well for the Ukrainians for the next few weeks. Uh, I think there's going to be significant losses of territory. And the Russian goal here uh, isn't just to defeat Ukraine or carve off a piece of it. It's to go beyond Ukraine. Uh, Russia is attempting to shore up its border system. Right now, it's completely unmoored, but during Soviet times, it controlled all of the gateway access points like the Polish plain. Russia's trying to get back to that space uh, in order to get security. Now, before you say, oh, well, you know, we should allow them to be secure, this requires them conquering a number of countries that have a combined population more than Russia. So I think we're still on the right side of history to fight that. Uh, the problem that the Defense Department, in my opinion, sees is when the convoy came, you remember that convoy in like day three of the war that was coming south from Belarus to Kiev, it was like 40 miles long, that crazy one? Well, it stalled out in a day because it forgot fuel trucks. And then it soldiers had to walk back to Belarus on day three because they forgot supply trucks. And the Russians are showing themselves to be utterly incompetent at uh, multi-domain operations and integrating their air force with their land activities, which is, you know, from the American military point of view, kind of like 101 and how you fight a war. Mm -hmm. So there was this first, this huge surge of surprise and optimism among the American military. It's like, wow, we can totally take them in a war. Then everyone kind of sat down and looked at the map and thought about it, like, oh crap, we could totally take them in a war. We now know that if American and Russian forces meet directly, that the Russian force will be obliterated. And the only Russian option there, aside from a broad strategic retreat that they know will doom their country in the long run, is to escalate. So from the U.S. point of view, we don't have a choice anymore. We have to make sure that this war never leaves Ukraine. We can't have direct American involvement because then we have that direct clash. Yeah. But anything that isn't nailed down, anything that we can train the Ukrainians up on in a very short period of time, not, not weeks, days is going and it looks like we're already in the process of modifying our drone arsenal so that you don't even need training it's got like a two-page instruction manual and you can just put it in your backpack and go to the front line that's the nature of the war now making sure that it never can spread beyond ukraine and this is where we need to kill the russian military so that this is the last war the russians ever fight and since the russian population is in collapse this is all they've got right now, the soldiers they have. But that doesn't mean it's going to be easy or quick. Russia fights until it can't. 
And they have not ever been in a meaningful war where they've lost less than a half a million people. Hi everyone, Peter Zine here, coming to you from an exciting hotel room near the Des Moines airport. On my way back on the war path here, going out to see some people and speak to groups, uh, I wanted to take today as an opportunity to discuss what's going on with Russia as regards a possible coup or secession. Uh, there have been a lot of folks, especially in the European Union, who are now actively publicly calling for the Russian oligarchs to overthrow the Putin government, and I thought it was worth picking that apart. There are two groups of oligarchs. The first are the ones who got their assets by robbing the state blind in the 1990s uh, in the post-Soviet collapse. This group includes folks like Peter Avon and uh, Mikhail Friedman uh, of Alpha Bank. This includes Michael Prokhorov of Norilsk Nickel, which is the world's largest nickel, platinum, palladium, and um, copper uh, deposit. Uh, it's like 40% of the world's palladium comes from there. Uh, these folks have minimal influence over the Putin government. They can't demand a meeting. They don't have access to the guy. Uh, whenever he calls, they come running because they cut a deal with Putin back in 2000, right when he became president. Putin said that you can keep your assets as long as you pay your taxes, start paying your taxes, and you never get involved in politics. And that deal has more or less stuck for the next 22 years. So these folks do have a few assets outside of Russia, and these are largely what the governments of the West have been going around and confiscating and threatened to uh, expropriate. And it's not that I feel bad for these guys. I mean, they got their stuff by stealing the state blind. But they are not ones who have the influence that would not be necessary to make a coup. They're widely disliked, not just by Putin, but by the entire Russian population. And if Putin wanted to... Uh, get a few more points in popularity, executing a couple of these guys would probably do it for them, and they know it. So they are not the kind of group that you can really turn to for any sort of political change. The second group of oligarchs are the ones who became rich because of Putin. Putin brought them in. Either they were former KGB members or folks from his inner circle, whatever it happened to be. Uh, this includes folks like Sergei Chemizov, who is the world's most sanctioned person. He's in charge of the military-industrial com complex of Russia. And whenever you see equipment breaking down on the field, that's his fault because he is breathlessly corrupt. Uh, and Alexei Miller of Russia's Gazprom, which is the world's largest natural gas concern. Uh, these guys have access to Putin, and some of them, like Chemizov, are actually in the inner circle, but they are blindly loyal. Everything they have is because of their position next to Putin, and if he were to fall, they would probably fall too. There's one exception. There's a guy by the name of Igor Sechin, who's in charge of Rosneft, which is the state oil company of Russia. He used to be a gun runner during the Cold War, and he's got the guts and he's got the means and he's got the access. If anyone in the inner circle or anyone of the elite is going to off Putin, it's going to be him. But if there's one thing that the rest of the elite, whether in the inner circle or out, agrees upon, it's that Sechin is kind of a jackass, and they would probably pool to their strengths uh, to off him the next day after he got rid of Putin. So I don't see a palace coup being very likely or a coup from within the inner circle or the oligarchs in general. Uh, this is just something that's going to have to go by the more old-fashioned method, which is wait for the state to collapse. Uh, in Russia, the czars, the leaders, whoever they happen to be, they're stable until they're not. 
And right now, the lights are still on, the trains are still running, and the wheat is still coming in. So while there are a lot of Russians who are embarrassed or angry with certain aspects of the war, we are nowhere near the critical mass that is necessary to generate any sort of meaningful revolt. So far, less than 1%, sorry, less than 1 one-hundredth of 1% of the Russian population has participated in protests, and those are pretty much over already. So if the Russian government's going to change, it's not going to be via this vector, at least not now. Uh, I'd like to give a shout out at the end of this one to two things. First of all, to my nephew Ian in South Korea. Hey, Petty, how you doing? Uh, for everyone who doesn't think that I am his uncle, uh, I would point out that I'm adopted, not him. So that's why the eyes don't match. And then second, uh, another shout out for the Alpha Foundation, or excuse me, the AFLA Foundation, A-F-Y-A Foundation.org. Uh, they are in the process of equipping some medics to go into Ukraine proper and help with the evacuation of civilians. If you can provide them with any assistance, that would be great. Uh, just immediately under this video, there's a link to their Amazon wish list where you can pick specific equipment that you want to send with them. All you have to do is click on something on the list, pick the number of things you want to buy, put it in your cart per normal, and it'll go right to them. Okay, that's it from me. Until next time. Uh, we'll see how the Chinese do at power transitions. See, the thing about a unidirectional and even a, an authoritarian state is that it's possible now and then that it can be more efficient if it gets lucky and is going in the direction that works at the time. And that's fine until something changes, which it most certainly will. And one of the things that's so amazing about the United States, and I've watched this happen time and time again because I'm old enough to have seen it, is that no matter what problems emerge, in your country there's a bunch of people somewhere who are already working to solve it because it is a free country and it is characterized by genuine diversity and and distributed autonomy and so you guys go in the wrong direction and you hit a wall and what happens is a bunch of people who were working in the opposite direction pop up and say hey over here this is working how about we try this and away you go and it works over and over and so you might not be as efficient in the short run now and then and you might have even said that about Japan versus the United States in the 1980s, say when Japan was such a powerhouse and was heading in a single direction in some sense. But the Japanese couldn't manage failure, partly because they couldn't let enter large enterprises, you know, you hear that mantra, too big to fail, eh? It's like, no, 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 so big, it will certainly fail. That's the proper mantra. And the Japanese couldn't let their devastated and archaic systems collapse. Whereas you Americans, like you'll let things fail or you've been pretty good at that. And what that does is open up a space for things to succeed. And so the Chinese could gain an edge in the short term, but they also have a president for life and a social credit system. And so that doesn't really seem like progress to me. And I think it will stultify them in the final analysis. America is so creative. You look at Silicon Valley. I mean, you have such a concentration of brilliant and creative people there. It's unparalleled. It's an unparalleled pool of stunning talent. You don't know where the next solution to the problem is going to emerge. And so you guys are perfectly willing to let a thousand, a hundred thousand, five hundred thousand experiments flourish. And so then when something does go wrong, a multitude of solutions are already at hand. And you can't get that in the absence of genuine 
political and economic freedom. So, no, I don't have any faith at all in China's ability to prevail in any fundamental sense over any reasonable span of time. I'd bet on the U.S. and I'd bet on the West, you know, as long as we don't do our institutions in because of all the guilt that we seem compelled to foist upon ourselves in an in a unthinking manner. I'd bet on free and diverse economies, just like everyone else bets on them. <laughs> People put their money in the American stock market and rich Chinese do exactly the same when they're allowed to and no bloody wonder. So, no. It, it reminds me of Winston Churchill's comment that democracy is the worst form of government uh, out there, uh, with the exception of every other uh, type of government that he's ever right. seen. Right, right. Well, that that and that's kind of essential to a to a, I would say something like an appropriate conservative ethos. It's like, yeah, it's flawed, but it's not as flawed as your utopian vision. You have to accept that. Well, and even appreciate the flaw in some sense. You have to appreciate the flaws in some sense, and that's a that's that's a hard thing to learn. You have to be a pretty sophisticated thinker before you're willing to see the inadequacies of a system as part of what actually makes it great. And I, every time I come to the United States, I'm just and I've traveled across the U.S. a lot. I think I've been to virtually every state and pretty much every major city, and the the wealth of infrastructure here is stunning. And the creativity of the populace is amazing. And the desire of people to maintain their freedom is remarkable. And the entrepreneurial spirit that imbues the country and that gives it this sense of drama and purpose is, isn't manifest to the same degree anywhere else in the world. And, you know, we could turn everything into hell with enough stupidity, and maybe we will. But all things considered, I'd still bet on the U.S. and the West for all sorts of reasons. Yeah. Now, whether AI can replace general intelligence, that depends to some degree on exactly how you define intelligence. You can define it as the first factor that emerges across tests of ability that require uh, abstraction. That's a good way of defining it. It isn't obvious to me that we have intelligent machines that fit that criteria yet. And then discriminating intelligence from consciousness, that's also a very tricky problem. So we do have AI systems that can replicate complex, automatable processes. We're on the brink of explosions in all sorts of technology, assuming we don't decimate ourselves in, in the next few years. And by the time we hit the point of, pop, of radical population decrease, things will have changed so much that I don't think that question is answerable. I mean, obviously, one of the things that's going to happen is that our ability to produce quasi-intelligent machines will address the labor shortage to some degree. But it's too far, a the time horizon's too expanded for me to speculate. I don't even know what's going to happen in two years, let alone 20. I do think the population decrease is, I don't think it's a good thing. Everyone seems to think it's a good thing, except perhaps Elon Musk. I don't think it's a good thing at all. I think it's indication that society has lost its way in a fundamental sense to see population growth fall below replacement. It hasn't happened everywhere. I mean, there'll be more people in Nigeria than in China by the end of the century, which is quite the stunning statistic. And certainly the West is doing its best to empty itself out as rapidly as possible. But it's also Korea. Korea has an extremely low birth rate. Uh, Japan has an extremely low birth rate. 
It's a sign of the demoralization of a population in my estimation. People who think diversity, inclusivity and equity just means we're no longer racist, have no idea what system of ideas is driving this entire enterprise, um, which is also predicated on the idea that our implicit cognitions, as measured by the implicit association test, are fundamentally racist despite our explicit wishes, and even more preposterously, that those implicit biases can be modified by explicit training programs which isn't even justifiable by the tenets of the theory itself. And so what are the consequences of implementing that? Well, I can tell you what's happening in the research enterprise in Canada, and this is happening in the US too. You can't get a research grant in Canada and all you MIT STEM types who aren't, don't have a political bone in your body have better be watching out for this because you're going to get steamrolled by the ideologues who have a way better grasp of political reality than you guys do while you're concentrating on your vitally important research as you should be. Um, in Canada, you can't get a research grant to do engineering or, or hard science work unless you write a diversity statement. Well, now you've subsumed your science to the diversity claims. It's like, and here, let's, let's think this through. Okay, so I've been an academic at high-level institutions for 40 years, basically, including McGill, where I was a graduate student, and I've watched hiring committees operate at the universities. I defy anyone to find any hiring committees that have ever been established by anyone ever anywhere in human history that have been as fair in their application of the demand for competence as university faculty hiring committees. We've never done better ever than we did in the last 30 years. And now we're willing to swallow this absolutely preposterous notion foisted on us by incompetent HR professionals who are undertrained, accusing us of an implicit bias that we can't control that they could fix and should fix and have to fix, by the way, by the imposition of these incredible, scientifically unjustified training programs. And so what's the consequence of that? Let moralizing fools run your important enterprises and see what happens. Now, I noticed that MIT, for example, dropped the uh, math SAT requirement. Well, you, you know what? You guys, they're the greatest engineering school in the world. You know, that actually turns out to be important, really important. And now you say, well, objective tests, they don't matter. It's like, yeah, well, good luck with that proposition. So it's... I cannot understand how business people and academics for that matter, who are perhaps even worse, can be so blind as to let in a fifth column, essentially, predicated on the notion that capitalist systems and patriarchal systems in general are fundamentally unjust and racist, and then to promote that as evidence of their open-heartedness open and willingness to deal with racism. It's, it's beyond comprehension to me, and we will definitely pay for it. We are paying for it already. You need to look at the topographical map of the Russian space in Europe to get an idea of what he's after. Russia has been invaded 50 odd times in its history. And all of the invasions have come through one of nine of what I call gateway territories that link the former Soviet space to the rest of the world. The Polish gap, the Bessarabian gap, those are two of the biggest ones. And they are, unfortunately for the Ukrainians, on the far side of Ukraine from Russia. So Putin's end goal here is to plug all nine of these gaps. And when the Soviet Union collapsed, the Russians went from controlling all nine to just one. 
And bit by bit with the Kazakh conflict, with Karabakh, with the Georgia War, with the Crimean War, they've added bits and pieces back to plugging those gateways. And if they get Ukraine in its totality, they will have merely plugged another two. Now, that does mean that Ukraine is not the end of the story. It's just the middle of the story. There's another war after this one. So the geography explains the why. Uh, the why now is demographics. The Russians, well, I don't know if you've ever been to Russia, the, the, the climate is awful and it's very difficult in a modern society to function because you don't have rivers going the right directions, the, the winters are long and they're harsh, and so civilization in the way that we think of it is very expensive and they don't have any natural ways to generate capital on their own. So it's always been a very brute force approach and it took Stalin to industrialize what was then the Soviet Union. But that has a consequence. As you move people off of the farms and into cities, kids go from being free labor to just being mobile, loud, expensive pieces of furniture. And you have less of them because adults can do math. So Russia in two generations went from having seven children per family to now under two. And that was before the bottom fell out in the post-Soviet collapse. And they're now down to about 1.4. The generation that collapsed in the 1990s is now so small that when it's their turn to have kids, there's not a whole lot that can happen. So this is kind of the last year that the Russians have a large enough cadre of people in their 20s to have a draft-based military. You wait any longer than this, and the Russians are going to have difficulties patrolling their own internal territories, much less fighting off any external aggressor. So while no one's expecting a war in the short term of somebody invading Russia, the Russians know that if they don't do this now, that no matter what the power balances are in the future, they will always be on the losing side. Yeah. We basically have a hemisphere to ourselves. I mean, our best friends are the Canadians to the north. Our most integrated economy neighbor is Mexico, not now our largest trading partner. Our second largest demographic partner. Russia's never been like that. Russia borders a dozen different countries, all of which have taken a crack at Russia at some point in the past. And hypersonics sound great until you realize that unless you put a nuke on the end of that, all you've done is blown up a building. And it's a very expensive way to blow up a building. So hypersonics really serve very little purpose in a conventional war. Jets do, and Russia's military reflects that. When you've got a large chunk of territory and you expect to be the defender, you have bottomless supplies of cheap disposable jets. And to this point, there's no one on their borders who can match that. But the Germans are no slacks. The Swedes always punch above their weight. The Poles have a historical grudge to bear. The Iranians and the Turks have never been Russian friends. The Chinese almost got in a nuclear war with the Japanese in the past, and the Russians are still smarting over their war with Tokyo back in 1905. So from the Russian point of view, there is no horizon that is safe. And the hypersonics just aren't the weapon systems to balance that. The only reason that the Russians have done hypersonics is their logic is if it works, then we have the ability to strike the North American continent in a very short period of time. I would argue, though, that what we've seen out of the Russian systems does not look all that promising for no other reason than either the Trump or the Biden administrations hasn't pushed for a new round of nuclear arms talks. Because as soon as they started working on hypersonics, we started working on hypersonics. And that was a program here that we shelved in the 70s. So it was very easy for us to get that back up and running again, whereas they were doing it from scratch. And if something is going to change the strategic balance that extremely and the Russians know they can't keep up in the financial fight, you know they're going to be screaming for arms control because that's the only way they can achieve parity. As a rule, in most of the nomenclature, faster than Mach 5. So the idea is they have an intercontinental launch and then they glide down and then they're following the curvature of the Earth to the point that it's very difficult to track them. And so they make the entire trip 
to the United States in like 30 minutes or less. You're talking about needing to fire your interceptor before you see the missile. That's the whole idea of it. Uh, let's start with the health. The Russians, I don't want to say they're all alcoholics or anything like that, but no. you can buy shots of vodka in the subway to keep you warm on a winter morning from wow. a little old lady that's just right there at the door. The, the idea that vodka solves all harms is definitely ingrained into the society. In a long winter, low sun climate like Russia, there are not a huge amount of vegetables and fruits in their diets, a lot of saturated fats, and a lot of heroin. In per capita terms, Russia is probably the second most addicted country in the world. And because the bottom fell out of the healthcare system post-Soviet, they also have the highest tuberculosis rates in the world. Probably one in four Russians carry the TB bacterium and buccalus form. And it's not the TB that we know here in the United States. It's multi-drug resistant. So you're talking about needing two years of antibiotics at the cost of several thousand dollars a person to get off of it. And they just don't have the income for that. HIV, they used to be one of the most infected countries in the world, and then they stopped collecting data. So we haven't had a good update on that in 15 years. But at that time, it looked like the people of reproductive age, upwards of a fifth of the population may have been exposed, but we really just don't know. Education. In the 1980s, especially after 1983, the Russians were facing a simultaneous strategic and financial crunch. And the only way they could make the strategic picture work was by having some sort of peace with the United States. They had outspent themselves for 30 years. And so they were flat broke. And because you don't just go from, that is my ideological foe, that's the country that's been threatening me with nuclear weapons for 50 years, to, yeah, we can talk now. You don't do that in a year. It took two premiers dying of old age before they could finally make that offer. So in the meantime, they just tried to spend their way out of their strategic embroglio, and it didn't work. It bankrupted them. And so they had to figure out where to cut. Well, they couldn't cut the military because they weren't really ready to make peace. They couldn't cut the nuclear facilities because they weren't ready to make peace. They couldn't cut their oil and natural gas production because that was their only source of income. So they cut education. In Russia, the educational system is different from here. So here you go to high school, you go to college, maybe you go to grad school, you enter the workforce, and you know, you're earning money from day one, hopefully. But in Russia, there is a technical training that was done in their high schools that is not done in the United States as a rule. And then you become an apprentice. And you have an apprenticeship for four or five, six years before you go on and get your grown-up job of being an accountant or an engineer or whatever it happened to be. Well, the high school technical training collapsed around 1985. That's when all these cuts happened, just as Gorbachev was coming to power, which meant that there was no one that could be taken as an apprentice right out of high school. You would have to train them up additionally. And so the labor force got very thin and the educational system was never repaired. And you had the post-Soviet collapse where pretty much everything was canceled. And you fast forward to now and the youngest group of people who have had that technical training and had a good apprenticeship and actually had a real adult job, you know, they're in their late 50s. And it's far too late at this point to regenerate that. They've tried a couple of times with hiccups here and there. It's never really stuck because it was never for more than a small subsector like software coding or a very specific group of people like friends of Putin's kids. And as long as that's been the situation, you know, you're not getting the millions of new workers that are skilled that you need every single year. Two million workers also moved out in the aftermath of the Soviet collapse. They were all young and they were all skilled. And we've probably had about a quarter million Russians flee so far during the Ukraine war, which again, were young and skilled, and they were absolutely irreplaceable. So you fast forward just a year or three, and we're talking about the Russians having to make some very real choices about what to let drop. Oil, natural gas, food production, the military component, the strategic missile forces. They can't keep all of these things up and running. 
And I don't want to overanalyze this because we just don't have very good information. We're only in three, three of the war. Right. There's a case to be made that their military commanders are something they decided to let drop, in which case that was probably the wrong thing at this time. But we've seen a rocky level of military coordination and logistics in the war so far. It's abysmal. It's underperformed what every analyst I have spoken with has ever guessed the Russians were capable of. We thought they learned all those lessons after the Second Chechen War, because by the end of the Second Chechen War in 2001, they weren't doing this anymore. But here we are 20 years later, and despite a couple significant international deployments, and all of a sudden it feels like we're back in 1993. The very approach to this is not a problem necessarily with logistics. It shows a level of incompetence on strategic thinking. You're talking a thousand plus vehicles in a single file line, 40 miles long. I'm sorry, that's idiotic. And here we are. So it's looking like a catastrophic failure to perform across the entire system. The Russians are going to still win despite all of this. They outnumber the Ukrainians. They've got better equipment. They've got shorter supply lines. They don't have to worry about controlling their borders in order to keep the resources coming. They can suck up a huge amount of casualties and Russian society will not rebel. Remember, it wasn't until you had almost a million dead in World War I that we had any inkling of political problems back in Russia. We're nowhere close to that. And a lot of Russians agree with what Putin is doing, either for nationalist regions or for strategic reasons. So these reports that we do see about people fleeing Russia, they are true. There are dissidents. They are not going to win. So far, all of the protests combined, still talking less than one-tenth of one percent of the population. That doesn't move the needle in a dictatorship. And so Russia is going to win this, and then they're going to have to pacify the country. And the question is, what level of internal violence and sabotage are they willing to tolerate in order to move on to the next stage of the war? And that's where things get interesting from the NATO point of view. Because if there's one thing that was coloring American decision-making on all things Russian, it's that they were maybe not a peer force, but a near-peer force. And we would have to be very careful how we operated. We would have to be at the top of our game if we weren't going to have horrendous casualties. All of a sudden, that logic's gone out the window. And we now know that if American forces and Russian forces meet on the field of battle, the Russian forces will be obliterated. And if that happens, the only choice the Russians have is between a humiliating strategic withdrawal to do whatever the Americans say or up the ante with nukes. And so from the American, from the White House, from the DOD's point of view, this has gotten a lot scarier than we ever thought it would be. Because all of a sudden, if we can't keep Russia locked down in Ukraine, if we can't bleed them there till they die, if we can't make it out of their reach so that they can then go on and do the next series of targets, then there will be a direct American-Russian confrontation that we can't avoid because these are NATO allies. So the NATO strategy, the White House strategy now, is to ship every piece of military equipment that we can that doesn't require a static, physical resupply or launching point like a plane. So drones are good. Anti-tank missiles are good. Stingers are good. Anything like that's great. Send it all. Because as long as Russia is bogged down in a bloodbath in Ukraine, they can't go to the next step. And that's where the American troops are. We have to prevent that from happening because the Russians now appear so weak. The degree of desperation that might exist in their strategic thinking is something that we really hadn't taken into account earlier. It's the same basic concept as what's going on with the military and the economy. The last group of people who have the full suite of training were trained in the mid-1980s. In the case of the leadership specifically, we're talking about all people from the KGB. When Yuri Andropov took over in the early 1980s, it was a bit of an internal coup in that we had one faction that used to be part of the government take over the government because they thought that the previous 
two rulers, Khrushchev and Brezhnev, had mismanaged the system so badly that they really needed adults in the room, people who had the full picture of everything that was going on. And in a highly censored totalitarian dictatorship, that meant the intelligence services. So the KGB generated Yuri Andropov, uh, Chernenko, and ultimately Gorbachev, all from the KGB, to run the system. Well, these people stayed in, I wouldn't even call it the background. They weren't officially in charge, but they were always large and present in the 1990s. And when Yeltsin took ill, they're the ones who took over from Yeltsin. So we had a quick revolution, lasted a few years, and Yeltsin got dropped because his health was atrocious. And the KGB's successor, the FSB, has been in charge of ever since. Now, Putin is obviously from that crowd, but so is everyone around him. Alexei Miller of Gazprom is probably the best example, but the chiefs of all of the major companies that they're called the Silovarks, the security oligarchs, uh, uh, that have taken over chunks of the Russian economy in large bites ever since 1999. They are all personally beholden to Putin. They are all from that inner circle, and they are all over 50. There is not a generation waiting in the wings that has been trained. Putin has been very effective at pruning any potential challengers to his rule. So he will be the last capable, competent president of the Russian Federation. He's already 70. Every once in a while, we have a faction within that group that kind of rises to prominence because they want to succeed. And as soon as Putin thinks they might get closely to succeed him, he smashes them. And so right now, we haven't had anybody like that for a few years. I mean, if you look at the demographics, it is perfectly reasonable to assume that Putin was going to be the last leader of Russia anyway. So if you're just staying in power to be the person who will turn the lights off, I've heard dumber things. The best case scenario is we get something a little bit like what happened after Mao left in China, like a, a gang of four from the different factions who rules as a committee, and then one of the four offs the other three, and then he's in charge. That's kind of the best case scenario now. I think it'd be more likely that Putin has so removed everyone of leadership talent that would probably have more of an organizational collapse. Igor Sechin of Rosneft, that's the state oil company, is probably the most capable who's left, but everyone else of the 150 KGB members that are left so thoroughly hate him in all things that it's really doubtful that he'd be able to rally anyone to his flag. So there really is no one. We look at leadership different than the Russians do. The strong man is who rules Russia. It always has been. The terrain does not lead to regional economics that are separate. So like, you know, here, Texas, New York, California, Florida, Minnesota, these are all discrete economic entities. And so we have a federal system where each of the states chooses their own leadership and then submits their leadership choices at a representative level to Washington. That would never work in the Russian Federation. In the Federation, you've got Moscow, you've got St. Petersburg, and then you have all these secondary cities that are dependent upon some degree of link to one of those two. And all of them have been conquered by Russia over the course of their existence. Every single one of them. Russia is not a republic. It's certainly not a democracy. It's a multi-ethnic empire. And with that sort of political and economic footing, someone's in charge. And if someone's not in charge, no one's in charge. And the future of Russia, in my opinion, is probably going towards the latter. But for now, it means that you have a strongman in the center who appoints regional strongmen like Kadyrov to look after things for him. This is not about growth. This is not about jobs. This is not about popularity. This is about control. So Chechnya is no longer functionally part of the Russian Federation from an economic point of view, but the independence push was squelched. And Kadyrov regularly participates with Moscow when it comes to security issues, specifically 
Putin relies upon the Chechens to assassinate people in Russia who he finds politically inconvenient. Ukraine's, again, just this is the middle war. So, you know, Karabakh, Georgia, Crimea, Kazakhstan, these are all kind of in their back pocket now. Even control of all of Ukraine doesn't solve the problem on the Western Front. They would, in addition, need Moldova, the northeastern sliver of Romania. That's part of the Bessarabian Gap. That's how the Turks have often invaded. They would also need eastern Poland right up into downtown Warsaw on the Vistula River. That's the Polish Gap. That's where the Nazis like to invade it. And then they would need Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania in totality because that's how the Swedes have gotten in the past. So you're talking about six more countries, five which are members of NATO. Obviously, that's where things get very dicey. I mean, they can probably capture Moldova in a long weekend, although looking at the military effectiveness so far, maybe I should extend that out to a month. But for the other five, if Ukraine is able to keep the fire lit, then the Russians aren't going to have enough conventional forces to do this. And the only thing worse than having a Russia that didn't try to do this and just kind of shrivels in time would be a Russia that leapt forward, launched the war, paid all the prices for the war, and still remains strategically unmoored. So there's a a point we're going to get to in a few months, probably later this year, certainly next year, where the Russians will have digested Ukraine and Moldova to their satisfaction, their plan, and then they'll have that clash with NATO. And that's when the nukes become a very real question. Think about what the Russians did in Crimea. They started moving in troops. It was apparent that the populations were russified enough that they were not going to resist. And when talk in the West started coming around about, you know, we're going to back dissident forces like, say, the Crimean Tatars, who are basically Turkish, the Russians snarled, well, that will mean an end to all energy exports from Russia into Europe. At which point, Angela Merkel, in one of her more ignoble moments, said, Crimea is Russia's. We will have a level of sanctions that will not approach anything that causes economic pain to either side, and we are going to call it there. That is no longer an option. So strategic weapons are now on the table for that threat. Well, German and Russian history is always about trying to find ways to work together so they don't fight, and then that not working, so then they fight. But then that doesn't work, so they try to find ways to work together so they don't fight. This is like the ninth cycle. (laughs) Yeah. This is the back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, and that's why the countries that are between the Russians and the Germans hate history so much. Ukraine. At the start, it was a country of 45 million people. We are now down to 42.5 million people. It's the biggest movement of people ever recorded in human history. Wow. Two and a half million people in under three weeks. That's just unprecedented. And we are nowhere near done because right now the fighting is only happening on less than one fifth of Ukrainian territory. Wow. Yeah. Ukraine is huge. Yeah. We haven't even gotten to the part of Ukraine that before three weeks ago, we considered the pro-Western part. As a rule, it's not perfect, but the river, the Dnieper that cuts the country roughly in half, the general understanding was if you're west of that, you're pro-Western and you consider yourself primarily Ukrainian. And if you're east of that, you're pro-Russian, you consider yourself at least a Russian speaker. What the Russians have done in the last eight years and having this low-intensity war in Ukraine and the Donbass has changed that. And everyone in Ukraine is now broadly considering a Ukrainian. And outside of Russian TV, there's no one in Ukraine that is not resisting in some way. I mean, this is just an epic turnaround from a national identity point of view. So Russia is going to not just have to level the entire place. They're going to have to continually bomb and launch programs the length of the entire country to retain control. That's going to generate at least another 10 million refugees. And that's going to require at least a couple million Russian soldiers to occupy the place. And that's the vast bulk of the Russian military. That includes their draftees. 
So we're not just talking about the best Russian troops completely being locked up. We're talking about nearly all Russian troops being locked up unless the Russians issue a state of emergency and start drafting anyone under age 50, which is probably where this is going to go because wow. the Russian economy is in free fall anyway. So why not? We don't know what he's going to do because he doesn't know what he's going to do because he's not getting good information. So ah. people are saying that, you know, Putin is talking to the voices in his head. There's some truth to that. But for the most part, there is a cadre. They are intelligent. It's just not a lot of people. With Xi, there's no one. So predicting what the Chinese are going to do is kind of an exercise in futility. I see. There's really nothing else that the Russians can give the Chinese. The Chinese have already reverse engineered all their weapons. The pipelines to China are already running at full capacity. The rail system is already running at full capacity. The only other way to get more stuff would be if you loaded at a uh, Russian Western port, say Petersburg or Novorossiysk, which is their shallow ports, their small boats, then somewhere at sea, you transfer the cargo from a small vessel to a larger one, sail it around Africa because you can't use Suez all the way to China. So the cost of that, the logistics of that, getting around insurance companies and shipping companies, they'd have to charter everything themselves, insure everything themselves, and running routes that are four and five times as long as all their other supply routes are. So just the volume of stuff that you might be able to increase to Beijing is just minuscule. So all that is left from the Chinese point of view is, you know, how long is Russia a useful distraction away from people ganging up on China? Because on day one of this war, the Chinese were really, really excited. Because like, oh my God, this is going to show just how weak the West is. This is going to show how Russia can take an entire country and walk away with everything that it had before. And that is just so false now. And the Chinese know that if they try something on Taiwan, they are far more vulnerable to the sanction packages that the United States has now led than the Russians are. Because at the end of the day, the Chinese still import roughly 80% of their energy and 80% of the inputs that allow them to feed their population. So if you do something like we've done against Russia, against China, not only does the Chinese system collapse in a matter of months, they've lost 500 million people from famine within a year. And they now know that. So the nationalist chest beating that we've been seeing more and more and more has gotten very circumspect. And they're just focusing on amplifying the Russian propaganda on Chinese news stations because they really don't know what else to do. Because they're seeing 50 years of strategic planning the Russians have torched in a month. And that's got to hurt.